Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. Today's episode marks a significant milestone to Paddling the Blue with episode number 100. We've talked with guests across the globe about paddling on every continent. Our first episode released in February 2020, and we've come to you every two weeks since. Since the launch, we've had more than 120,000 listens from 103 countries, and there are so many more stories to share with you, and we're really excited for the next 100 episodes to come. Thank you to every guest who's generously shared their experiences, and thank you to you for listening, for reaching out to tell us how you were inspired by a guest, for giving your suggestions for other guests, and your support. So today's guest is West Hansen. West and the four-person team, the Arctic Cowboys, came together to be the first team to paddle the entire length of the Northwest Passage by kayak in a single season. It's a tale that takes us from Baffin Bay to the Beaufort Sea while dodging icebergs, massive ocean waves, and killer corgi puppies. But before we get to our chat with West, we're grateful to everyone who's supported the show financially. And if you'd like to help, please visit our website at www.paddlingtheblue.com and click the buy me a coffee icon. Every little bit helps to offset the cost of the show and keep these great stories coming. And James and Simon at OnlineSeaKayaking.com continue to produce great content to help you evolve as a paddler and as a coach. You'll find everything from basic strokes and safety to paddling in tides, surfing, coaching, documentaries, it's all in one place. If you're not already a subscriber to OnlineSeaKayaking.com, here is your opportunity to get started. Visit OnlineSeaKayaking.com and use the coupon code PTBPODCAST at checkout, and you'll get 10% off up to 12 months of your subscription investment. Enjoy today's episode with West Hansen, episode number 100 of Paddling the Blue. Hi, West. Welcome to Paddling the Blue. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. This is uh, very exciting. Yeah. So you are just fresh off the Arctic Cowboys trip, uh, paddling the entire length of the Northwest Passage. That's right. About 48 hours ago, my buddy and expedition partner, Jeff Wiesty and I pulled into our home here in Austin, Texas. We drove straight through for about 10 days from the Arctic Circle, the town of Inuvik, with my pickup truck loaded with our kayaks and, and gear and, and a lot of dirt. <laughs> <laughs> we drove 4,200 plus miles from the Arctic Circle just to get home. That is amazing. Over 10 days. And you give me another statistic about that 4,210 miles. That's right. It was uh, coincidentally the roughly the same length of the Amazon River, which we paddled back in 2012. Wow. So that was, we didn't know that at the time. We were just driving from, from the Arctic. And then we looked at the odometer and we said, ooh, spooky stuff. So that was, <laughs> that was kind of neat. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, let's, let's get back a little bit. How did you discover paddling, in, first of all? Well, uh, it, it started as a, a PE class in college back at Southwest Texas State University. I took a whitewater course, and the, <laughs> the only reason I took it was because, you know, I was a, a poor college student, and it was cheaper to take the class and sign up for it and use financial aid to pay for it than it was to rent a kayak or canoe. Plus, they taught me how to, to whitewater kayak. And so I took two semesters of that class and learned to kayak, and I was a whitewater guy for several years until... 1992 central texas and there were a lot of floods at the time so i was running a lot of whitewater rivers the guadalupe and the san marcus when i saw these uh these sprinters these these canoe racers and it i'd never seen these lightweight boats and things and about that time i was getting really tired of doing rescues 
having to rescue people on, you know, some, some white water on the Guadalupe River, a lot of tourists who shouldn't have been there. I was really, every time I was going out, I was having to do a rescue. And so I started following these, these racers. And I entered my first race in my whitewater kayak, the 260-mile Texas Water Safari. And I did the first year during a flood stage, and so I was able to do it in a little 11-foot Perception Dancer, which was the premium whitewater kayak at the time, but not really what you would call an ultramarathon racing craft. But I made it, 25th place in 54 hours, and I was hooked from there. And I've been into the ultramarathon canoe and kayak racing scene since 1992. So... The 260 miles in a perception dancer, that has to be brutal. It was brutal. <laughs> but my reasoning was, okay, I don't know how to paddle these ultralight, skinny, you know, racing craft that these guys were in. I, so I'll stick with what I knew. You know, it, it worked out for me. But I think in any other year when the water was substantially, you know, closer to normal or even low, I, I may not have finished. And my history of the past 35 years or so would be completely different. But... You know, fortunately for me, we had high water and I was able to finish. All right. So tell us about the Texas Water Safari. Well, it's quite uh, legendary here in Texas. A lot of the people don't know about it. It's been going on for 60 years. Well, I guess 61 years because uh, they missed one year. It would have been 62 years, but uh, which is my age. I'm 61 years old. And it goes from San Marcos, Texas at the gateway of the hill country and follows the San Marcos and Guadalupe River all the way to the Texas coast to the town of Seadrift. 260 statute miles and every year about 150 to 160 boats enter it's very international and it's a very difficult race because of the condition there's not a lot of technical water but there's a lot of shallow water some dams you have to portage uh, log jams <laughs> a lot of snakes <laughs> a lot of spiders and it's uh, it goes non-stop so it's it's fairly grueling and it goes through swamps and then there's a six to eight mile open water crossing at the finish which is knocked out many of the racers within sight of the finish line. So it's a, it's quite a unique race. It's not the, it's not the cleanest, but it's probably the most exciting race out there. All right. And what was your time in that one? Uh, my first year in the dancer was 54 hours and 30 minutes. Once again, uh, I was fortunate we had a flood that year. Any yeah. other year, I wouldn't, I would not have made the hundred hour time limit in a dancer. So I read that the first time you'd been out of the country was when you were 46. So for someone with a history of South American expeditions and Russia's Volga River and now polar expeditions, what took so long? Well, uh, you know, it's there are a lot of Texans that really haven't traveled that much. Texan, Texas is a big state. And the other thing is, it just didn't occur to me. I was busy, you know, getting a college degree, having a career. My wife and I were raising our daughter. And I never thought I'm one of those guys that could afford to travel, you know, internationally. I'm, I'm a social worker, I'm a carpenter. You know, basically I came from, come from working stock whose idea of international travel, it just doesn't appeal, it doesn't occur to us until some friends called me up and said, hey, we're gonna go do this race on the Amazon River whereupon you build your own raft and you race it for three days over this 98 mile course. Well, I'm a, you know, I'm a carpenter, so I knew about, I could build a raft. I thought, okay, I can do that and then I'm, I was a canoe and kayak racer. I was actually in my prime at the time, in my 40s. And it was more of this, well, why not? Why not go to another country? <laughs> it, it never occurred to me before. <laughs> and so I went and got a passport. <laughs> there right. was. And, and the next thing you know, I'm on a plane to Peru and in the, the deepest, in the heart of the Amazon jungle and, and preparing for this race. So I was just 
I was just enamored with it. And, and the, it just kind of opened my eyes to the possibility that, wait a minute, I, I, I can travel. I can go to places. And it just took me that long in life to figure it out. And you'd already been racing with snakes and spiders, so why not? <laughs> exactly. The Amazon was, was child's play compared to the Texas coast. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, the mosquitoes are a little easier to deal with on the Amazon than the Texas coast. I, I realized that when we were down there, it's like, this, this, these are Amazon mosquitoes? This is nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and that race led you to another South American expedition on the Amazon. That's right. Once again, until this conversation with you, it never occurred to me that this is probably a literal epiphany, a eureka moment, the trip to the uh, Peruvian Amazon, because it showed me that, you know, international travel isn't intimidating. It can be affordable if you, you know, you work hard and you pay for it. And so that really opened up, maybe I can do things, you know, maybe I can go places. And my friend David Kelly, who was on that team that we, when we raced the Great River Amazon raft race, uh, we actually... We won it that year, and we set a record that still holds to today, this, a speed record, the four of us. And he lent me Running the Amazon by Joe Kane, the, the classic mm-hmm. classic book, uh, expedition book, uh, with Piotr Ilmanensky and Joe and uh, Big New Bizdak, butcher his poor name. <laughs> He's a wonderful photographer. And their expedition from what was considered the source of the Amazon back then to, to the Atlantic. And I read that, I absorbed that book on the way back to Texas from Peru. And uh, by the time I landed in Austin, uh, I got off the plane and told my wife, you know what, I'm going to paddle the entire Amazon River. (laughs) And I just, I thought, I can do this. I'm I'm an ultra marathon canoe racer. I've got some wins and records under my belt. And what these guys were doing was what what I did. I had some whitewater experience. And and so I thought, wait a minute, I can can do this job. It, It just started from there. And how many years passed until you did it? Oh, let's see. I guess four. You know, and there was no secret in planning the first expedition. There was just started researching anybody else that had gone down there, and I've since become friends with and acquaintances with a lot of the people, including Piort and Colin Angus and, and several others who had done the Amazon. There, luckily, there aren't a lot, so I was able to contact most of them, learning what I could, got all the maps, made another trip down there with my wife to kind of review the area. And then started assembling a team. And, you know, I went to the uh, outdoor retailer show and I got some gear sponsors, got a National Geographic grant, just, you know, applied for that like anybody else would. That's, I guess, one of my themes when I do these things is to try to explain to people that doing these kind of things is for regular, ordinary people. And you can do this. Here's how. It doesn't require, you know, any special degree or anything like that. It just requires a lot of perseverance and a lot of recognition of your own limits and how to, you know, the, the, the desire to work around them. So you've had some, uh, some mentors along the way, and you've mentored others, including uh, Darcy Gector, who was a, a guest for us on episode 21. Yeah, Darcy's crazy. And, and, and let's be clear, Darcy could whitewater me under the table. <laughs> Darcy is not, I'm no paddling mentor for Darcy at all. Uh, I just like to see I was there to support them and help them succeed in what they were doing. And, and, uh, Fortunately, you know, they were successful, and, and Darcy deserves all, all the accolades she, she has. But I, I do not compare myself in any way, shape, or form as the whitewater paddler she is. Absolutely. Uh, so I, I'm willing to bow my head to her skills in that area. 
So we could talk uh, we could talk for hours on that trip or Russia's Volga River, but let's let's go from the from the southern hemisphere to the northern hemisphere. And why the Northwest Passage with the Arctic Cowboys? Well, it's been a while since I've done an expedition. When um, after the Volga, then the Volga was was fun. It was probably the easiest of all our expeditions because it was fairly urban. We came to towns on a regular basis. We were able to resupply. We were <laughs> we were only held at gunpoint one time, so you know that's that's great. You know, only one time, <laughs> and and uh, <laughs> and the Russian people were particularly really nice to us. So it, the the challenges were fewer compared to the other expeditions. And it had been a few years. My daughter was an adolescent when I returned back from that, and I wanted to make sure that. I was there for her when she needed me and then through her college years and now she's working on her PhD in, in uh, molecular engineering. So I, I feel like she's launched. She She's at this place where she's you know fairly independent and I thought it was an opportune time for me to or, you know, start preparing for another expedition. I looked around and saw uh, some folks like Kevin Vallely and some others had attempted the Northwest Passage and no one had succeeded in navigating it either through rowing or or paddling and so i thought well let's give it a shot so how did you assemble the team well i've got my longtime buddy jeff wiesty who lives locally and i've raced with him on and off over the years and we're friends and so he's he's always a you know a given for the team he's very level-headed uh he knows how to paddle He's, he's a he's a great driver he's not a bowman but he's he's a really good driver and a race boat and then Last year, as you know, we, we had an attempt with three of us. I got another racer, Rebecca Feaster, real tough racer, uh, ultramarathon canoe racer from Texas. And I, I wanted to start bringing more women in on our team because women are a little more level-headed than men. And I really wanted to bring in a different component to the team. And so I've always wanted to have you know more women on the team. And, and she seemed like a really great fit. So... We, we all three went up there in solo boats, and we learned a lot. We, we, we only ended up going about 260 miles into the Northwest Passage, but along the way we learned about the weather, the tides. We got a lot of information from local people, and we aborted the trip before it got too dangerous and came back this year. So what was it with that trip that, uh, that, that cut it short? Well, Rebecca found the conditions to be a little bit more than she was comfortable with. And, and so she, she came out after about three days, and this was her first sea kayaking trip. So that was something that we wanted to make sure in the future that we had people ready for, because the conditions in the Arctic are, can, can be pretty rough. And to her credit, she was doing great, but she still wasn't, wasn't that comfortable. And then the gear we took wasn't up to what it should have been. We had read you know, about gear up there, but there weren't a lot of specifics from guys kayaking the Northwest Passage. I couldn't find any gear lists or anything like that. So we kind of had to make it up by what we thought was going on with the conditions, watching the weather and the waves. And it was insufficient what we had. So we realized we didn't have enough fuel, probably not enough food. And we set up a resupply while we were out there, the halfway point, uh, Fort Ross between the start and Cambridge Bay. And then but the what we had set up, which was just at the last minute, that fell through when the fellow's boat broke down. Mm. So without a resupply, it would have been foolhardy to, to continue on. So we just abandoned our efforts then and thought, no, let's, let's do this right. Most expeditions are undone not by one massive failure, but by a, a whole bunch of small things just building up. As Tim Cahill would put it, we were being pecked to deck 
death by ducks. <laughs> it was just, you're right, every little thing. And, and at some point, it's up to, you know, the expedition leader and the, the members of the expedition to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's look at the big picture here. And that's exactly what Jeff and I did last year. We just said, no, we need to succeed and we're not going to see, succeed with these variables going on. All right. So what did you change for from 2022 to 2023? Well, we went with tandem kayaks instead of solo kayaks with the idea that the tandems, bigger, heavier, can take rougher water. I think the solos were fine, but we needed to make some speed. And it's, you know, the idea is that if we had a, some tandem boats, we might be able to sustain higher speed over a longer distance. I'm not sure that panned out, but that was my thinking at the time. And they could carry, the tandems could carry more gear, more food. We didn't count on a resupply. We had to, let's, there are too many risks if a resupply missed us. And so I thought, okay, well, it's actually smarter, more prudent to not count on it. And so that's what we did. We eliminated the the thought process of having a resupply, which meant that we had to really buck up our gear, our stoves, our fuel. The main thing was the fuel, the cook fuel, you know, because there's nowhere to get it out there. And so once you once you launch, so we made sure we had enough fuel, enough gear, uh, substantial boats that can handle some big waves. And like I said, the solo boats were, were fine. I was just hoping we'd go a little faster on the tandem boats. Those are the main things we changed. And then adding two more people instead of just, you know, three of us, we were going with, we were going to go with a total of five initially uh, for this year. And I was going to be in a solo boat and then we'd have the two tandem boats and the solo boat would be primarily for safety to, to get to the people if they needed it. But through our vetting process, we ended up with four because the fifth person wasn't, wasn't skilled enough to handle the, the, the big water that we'd be hitting up there. Tell us about your other two team members then. We started talking to people we knew, racers primarily, other people in the paddling community that had done some serious distance uh, that we knew. And man, there's so many conflicts, you know, it's hard to get, you know, someone to take, you know, four or five months off of their life to, to go do something like this. And the financial obligation was big too. We're self-funded. And so Jeff came up with the idea of saying, well, let's just put an ad out there, see who bites. And so I put this, this ad out on Facebook saying, this is what we're doing. And here's some of the, the basics. And let's see who responded. Well, we got about almost 40 people responded seriously about wanting to go. And then we, over a period of months, we, we whittled it down to de definitely people that could not go or would not, you know, that wouldn't make the team to the best available people. And that's how we ended up with Mark and Eileen. So why the Northwest Passage of all the places? Hadn't been done. Also, it had been attempted many times. And that, that piqued my interest. I thought, you know, there are people trying to do this. And, and I read about all their the travails and I read the books and everything I could find about what they did and, and didn't do and the problems they had. And I thought, wow, this is definitely a challenge I want to take on. Because I, I felt like with the knowledge that I gleaned from their experience, we could do this. And I, I just love the idea of doing something that hasn't been accomplished. So let's talk a little bit about the route. Kind of give us the, the path of the route. There are many routes through the Canadian archipelago, and, and all of those routes are the Northwest Passage. Anything that goes through a strait, and this is part of a legal definition that Canada has been involved with for the past 70 years, I guess, in the international maritime courts. So we began on the, the east side, and the boundary on the east side is the, the boundary of the islands that border Baffin Bay. 
along its western coast, which is across from Greenland. No other, well, maybe one or two other teams had tried this over the years, including Vider Z and, and uh, his partner. They went over the ice uh, and they went over land and got snowmobiled a little bit. But other teams, most other teams start from the west. And I thought that was problematic because they would start early, early in the year when the, it's, it's a more southern location when you start on the west side in the Beaufort Sea near the town of Tukiak Tuk or Inuvik or even Alaska. And by the time the, the water's clear earlier in the year, they can get an earlier start. But by the time they get to the Victoria Strait, was when they have to start going further north in the Northwest Passage, lots of times the ice hasn't cleared and doesn't clear. That's a, a bottleneck for sea ice in the islands that make up the Victoria Strait, the Royal Geographic Islands. And so I didn't want to get stuck in that same situation where you do half the Northwest Passage and then get stuck. You can't go any further because of the sea ice. So I decided to start a little bit later in the year on the, uh, the east side, Baffin Bay. And then I can tell if the ice is clear or not before we even start heading towards the central part of the passage through Victoria Strait. And sure enough, it, it panned out really well there. We sat for two weeks waiting for the sea ice to clear in Baffin Bay. And then we uh, entered the Northwest Passage proper in Lancaster Sound, which you know, it's between Devon Island and uh, Bylot Island. And we crossed this, this boundary there that is internationally recognized as the eastern boundary of the, the passage. Headed west and then dove down into Prince Regent Inlet for a while and then made our way through uh, the infamous Bellot Strait. And that was one of the more scarier times in our uh, expedition. So talk about Fort Ross and the Bellot Strait. Well, we came to find out that no one had, well, we haven't heard of anybody that had kayaked the Ballot Strait or been through there in any human-powered vessel. The strait lies between Peel Sound and Prince Regent Inlet and has a tidal, I'm not sure it's a bore, but a strong tide every roughly four to six hours that reverses east to west, west to east. And it's fairly unpredictable. And on the eastern end of the 18-mile straight it narrows down and there are some very uh, dangerous rocky areas well with this tide the sea ice flows with you know back and forth with it these giant you know chunks of ice the size of houses and cars and so if you're in there in a kayak you know amongst these huge chunks of ice we could be crushed very easily and it's like i said it's very fast it's not like you have a chance to get away well we got it we stayed at fort ross three days waiting for the winds to die down because the winds, you know, are, are problematic with sea ice as well. And then we went into the strait. We, the information that we received had us in there at the exact wrong time. Mm. There's no real science to going through Bellot Strait other than just pulling up to it and seeing what it's like and then either going or, or holding off. And that's what the cruise ships do and, and other ships going through there, which is not many. Well, we got in there... And we're in the narrowest part, and then all of a sudden, within three minutes, the tide had picked up and was coming right at our face. Huge chunks of ice were flying at us, and, and it, giant whirlpools formed. I mean, the tide was that quick. It went from placid to horrendous within minutes. Our two kayaks, we, we got into the eddy of a rock formation that was about the size of a house in order to protect ourselves from the you know, chunks of ice flying towards us. And then when there was a slight break, 
between the ice coming our way, we sprinted to the shore, the nearest shoreline we could find for refuge. And we hung out there for six hours until the tides you know, subsided and flat conditions ensued. And we were able to calmly paddle the remaining 800 or 18, 18 miles through, through Bellout Strait. But it was, it was very scary. And, and uh, you know, we hadn't counted on that. I mean, it, it's tough to read. And, and, and for anybody that wants to do the same thing, you know, the best advice I could offer is, well, just go in there cautiously, hug the shore. It looks like flows are getting dangerous, jump on the shore and just wait it out. And that's exactly what we did. Is there much for uh, for tidal resources up there? I mean, to have, for you to understand the, the landscape and, and what's happening with the water? Well, normally there is. And we had uh, access to, you know, our bank crew was really good at giving us tide information, high tide, low tides. And it was, it was extremely accurate, but uh, we didn't really pay much attention to it during the expedition because it was irrelevant. We were getting up and we were paddling regardless of the tides. We couldn't just wait on them. However, with Bellot Strait, that's a whole different situation because of the unique characteristic of this very narrow, very turbulent area. And there is no real tidal flow charts or measurements that will help anybody there. And, and the ships that we talked to and the Coast Guard we talked to later basically said the same thing. It's like, well, you got to kind of get in there and if it looks bad, you need to pull over. <laughs> <laughs> Great advice. Thanks for that. <laughs> so give us an idea of the landscape. And what are we, what are we dealing with? Length and, uh, and width of this strait. You're talking about Bellot Strait? Yes. Well, it's, it's uh, bordered on the north by Somerset Island. And on the south by, get this, the most northern point of the contiguous North American continent. Okay. So the furthest you can travel without crossing bodies of water. That's Bellop Strait, the southern shore. And that was pretty exciting to pass by and recognizing that. And it's very narrow. It gets to be, at its narrowest point, it's probably 400 yards across, maybe 500 yards. And it gets to be about three quarters of a mile after that width. It's very wide. It's wide enough for two or three ships to pass through without any problem. But it's mountains on both sides, straight up. There are a couple of landing spots here and there throughout the strait, but towards the western end, when we got towards there, there were no landing spots. It was just straight up cliffs on both sides for probably the last eight or nine miles. So if we'd run into any problems there, it would have been very dicey. You've got an awful lot of water going through that constriction. A lot of water. Uh, you know, you have the Bernoulli effect, which speeds water up. You have the terrain itself, uh, the winds, and... So we were, we were very alert at the time, that's for sure. Fortunately, during that time, we had yet to have any darkness. So we still had 24 hours of daylight. So we weren't rushing to beat the end of the day or anything like that. We had plenty of, plenty of time for daylight. Now, Cambridge Bay, that was an area that you stayed at for a while as well? Yeah, we were there about a week. We had to wait on some resupply stuff. Uh, and unfortunately, when we got there, Yellowknife, the town in northern Canada, uh, had been evacuated because of wildfires. So any planes that normally would have come to Cambridge came through Yellowknife. So all flights were canceled coming and going from Cambridge Bay, which included our, you know, resupply dry suits and, and all the stuff we were waiting on just for our, that was our only resupply point. So we ended up hanging out there about a week. You had some repairs to do there? And... Yeah, we, dragging across the ice, one of the boats had a pretty good hole in it that I repaired just with tape. And so 
I was able to use somebody's shop and, and get some fiberglass repairs done and, and several other things. And it gave us the time to, you know, eat and, and heal some of our, our little wounds and things like that. So it was a nice respite. I thought it was interesting. I was uh, looking on Google Maps as I was following your route, and, and I looked at Cambridge Bay, and then I zeroed in on this one spot, basically in the middle of the town, and I noticed it's a KFC chicken restaurant. You know, our Barbara Eddington, who's our expedition manager, and also my sister, she's been the manager of all my expeditions, she mentioned that to us. And so for the last three weeks before we got to Cambridge Bay, that's all we talked about was, <laughs> oh my God, I can't wait to get some fried chicken. You know, we've been eating dehydrated meals and we'd been out there a little bit longer than we expected. So we were starting to ration our food a bit. We were very hungry. And, and man, all we could think about was fried chicken. We got there, it was closed down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a letdown. We were pretty disappointed. <laughs> Forget the fact that all of our gear was was late getting there. We wanted that chicken. <laughs> yeah. I, I, it just surprised me, though. I'm looking on the map, and a thousand miles from nowhere is, is a KFC restaurant. Yeah, it's actually located inside the uh, the Northern Store, which is one of the two grocery stores they had there. And uh, they would be open, except they have trouble finding employees, so they just ended up shutting down. All right. We were we were left high and dry. <laughs> now, I understand you mentioned ships earlier. I understand you saw quite a few ships on the way. Is the area getting populated at all? You know, this year, cruise ships were able to make it through all of the areas. They weren't iced in previous years. Uh, they have been, and you can actually read about it when Michael Palin uh, wrote his book, The Erebus. He was trying to make it through the Northwest Passage, and, and he, he was in a Russian icebreaker as a tourist ship, and that got turned around. So this year, there was nothing. Uh, the ice was clear for all the cruise ships, so we saw a handful of them. I would say in the distance, we saw probably a total of eight cruise ships making their way through. We, we spoke with with one of them over the VHF as we were preparing to go into to, to Bellout Strait. So we saw one cruise ship going there. And then we saw several freighters that that supply the uh, the hamlets up there. They call their towns the hamlets. Mm -hmm. And so these freighters make, you know, frequent, you know, sometimes twice a week treks to to the hamlets during the, while the water is open, they get up there as quickly as they can. Now, how did you experience the, uh, uh, the culture and the, and the people in the hamlets? Well, it's different than Texas, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, and uh, we spent some time in Pond Inlet at the start. And so we got to you know, meet and interact with a lot of the folks that have been there and their families have been there for a thousand years. It's, it's different, but it, you know, we can learn a lot. And I guess that's what we gleaned most was anything that someone who lived locally told us about the weather or the wind or the waves or anything, we listened to. I mean, like I said earlier, Roald Amundsen is... He's a huge hero of mine historically, primarily because he did what the locals told him to do. This is their area. If someone came to Texas and I taught, started to talk to them about the heat or, or cactus or snakes or something, if they didn't listen to me, I, I would just blow them off. They're fools. It's interesting because the Inuit, the people that, that we, we talk to, Titus Alulu, they have a different, different speech pattern than Texans. And so you have to give them time to say what they want to say. They may have more pauses than we do. So I had to slow down and, and listen, which was good because what they had to say was valuable. But one thing I really did appreciate, <laughs> got an amazing, amazingly dry sense of humor, a lot of sarcasm, and, and that, that was funny. <laughs> so that was, that was a lot of fun to deal with. And the kids, 
like anywhere we went around the world for our expedition, the kids are great. And they want to play and they want to wear our cowboy hats and they want to hear all about Texas. And, and so kids are always a great opening, you know, if, if you, you want to learn about someone's culture and just have a lot of fun because kids, kids are so curious. So tell us about some of the wildlife experiences you had along the way. Wildlife? What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, before we left Texas, it's funny you should mention that. You know, we'd be on the Internet talking about our expedition. And, and you know, you'd be amazed at how many polar bear experts there are in Texas <laughs> on social media. <laughs> it's like, really? This is what you're going to tell me? You're going to die up there. And, and so when we got up there, we did what we could. We asked the local guys, hey, how do we deal with polar bears? And it was a very common sense approach. And luckily, we, we had come prepared for that. This year, we had a rifle and a shotgun, 12-gauge, which is recommended by Parks Canada. And, you know, we had licenses for them both. And, and then uh, we had movement alarms that we set around the tent. So anything within a certain, you know, parameter or perimeter would set off these alarms. And those worked great. Uh, last year we had an electric fence. We don't know if it worked because no one wanted to test it. <laughs> but the movement alarms worked really well. We also had bear spray. We had uh, exploding flares, flare guns, and we had an air horn. Air horn didn't work, we think, because of the cold, but everything else worked great. During the first half of our expedition this year, rarely a day went by from Baffin Bay to Cambridge Bay where we did not see a polar bear. I'm talking every day. Hmm. And most of the time, well, maybe 60 to 70% of the time, the polar bear had cubs, either twins or a single cub. And that worried us, of course, much more than anything else. It's like, oh, let's make sure she doesn't feel threatened. Let's, <laughs> let's look as stupid as possible. <laughs> and and, and um, other times, they'd wander into the tent. We'd have to scare them off. Unfortunately, they scared off pretty easily. Mark Agnew, uh, who is from Britain, and raised in a fairly... Uh, non-dangerous atmosphere was very was very concerned about the polar bears uh, jeff and i were raised in texas and we were raised around guns and hunting and mountain lions and things like this you know things that'll kill you and snakes and so we were a little more used to that kind of thing and we weren't as alarmed we knew that you know we've got these guns and we don't want to shoot a polar bear my god i mm -hmm. feel horrible horrible shooting a polar bear and unfortunately we never did but I felt confident that, you know, if we needed to stop a polar bear, we had the, the firepower to do it pretty easily. So it was when we were asleep that I was most concerned. And that's when those movement alarms really paid off. The polar bears were present. We were concerned. And, and, and everything, all, all our actions paid off to, to ward them away from us. So aside from the danger, um, what was it like seeing them just walking along the shore? It was surreal at first. It was very strange uh, because these were these, you know, these killing giants and they were an apex predator. I mean, they were at home in the water. They were home on the land. They were fast. And they had everything they needed to kill anything they wanted. Uh, you know, the feelings varied between awestruck and and almost laughable. Now, that's I don't want to sound like I'm being flippant, but once you scare a polar bear away, which you can usually do by yelling, it was our experience go away or firing a flare or something they, they turn around and they start running and they head towards the water because that's their safe haven is jumping into the water when they turn around and run they've got these these giant furry white butts with this little bitty tail that wags and they look like giant corgis <laughs> like 
these little corgi puppies running away from you. And I thought, this is silly. This is a, uh, this is a killing machine. <laughs> We're kind of laughing. It's like, doesn't that look like a kind of a puppy butt to you? It's, yeah, except it's giant. And so we would kind of get a little chuckle out of that. The juxtaposition. Yeah. And the contrast between one end of a polar bear and the other end of a polar bear. <laughs> so our feelings were, were a bit mixed about them. We did not want them to be around us. Let me be clear of that. Yeah. But uh, it was nice to see them run away. Cool. What else for wildlife? Norwal. Uh, oh, yeah. during, the, during the initial third of our trip, at, at least till we got to Bellot Strait, we saw these pods of Norwal somewhere at least 70 or 80 Norwal. They would hover on top of the water. They would float up on the surface. And I guess they were looking for feed and just hang out in these floating pods. And they'd, pa- they'd, they'd, they'd paddle right up to us. I mean, they'd swim right up to us or we'd paddle up to them. And I got some great video. And, and it was just amazing that they felt so comfortable around us, which is also why they're so easily hunted. Norwal are not on any endangered species list. They are monitored very closely. The only people that are allowed to hunt them legally are Inuit. You have to have a tag. It's if, if someone gets one, they have to register that they got one. There's, there are supposed to be limits, but there aren't really limits because no one's really gone into excess of getting them. So, but at the same time, they're you know, very unique between Russia, Greenland, and, and, and Northern Canada. You know, they, that's their, their migratory area. And so to be amongst them and to watch them, they're not big whales. And, and not all of them have the Norwal tusk, you know, the big spear that's coming out of their head. It's actually a tooth. So it was just really a wonderful experience to have these guys right next to us, blowing out their blowholes, just kind of watching us. They were very <laughs> curious. Just to be allowed, I guess. I felt like we were allowed. We were tolerated. To hang out with them was, was quite honorable. It was our honor. And then we saw some belugas uh, only once or twice, uh, the white whales that actually can turn their heads and smile. <laughs> that was kind of cool. Lots of seals. They were extremely curious. A seal will, you know, come right at us and poke his head up and jump in the air, and they were very social. And then, of course, the myriad birds that habitate up there and migrate back and forth between the south and the north. I wouldn't say there's an abundance of wildlife like there is in the southern United States, but the wildlife there was very special and very unique. At one point, going down Peel Sound, uh, once we had gone through Bellot Strait, we had a muskox walk into our camp. Now, we, we saw a herd of muskox uh, earlier on when we were in Prince Region and from a distance, and we you know, watched them through binoculars. But this guy walked right into our camp. Well, what do we do? I mean, I didn't, I studied up on polar bears. I didn't <laughs> study up on muskox. And these are these prehistoric cattle, for yeah. lack of a better term. I mean, they, I worked cattle. You know, we're Jeff and I've been cowboys, and and uh, I knew behavior of cattle, and I, I feel very comfortable around one-ton bulls, but a muskox is, my gosh, if there's a dinosaur cow, that would be a muskox, <laughs> and and it had this low grunt that, uh, so we got the flares, we got the guns, and we're hanging around. What do we do with this thing? And it walked right up, and finally, it wandered off. But it was very, you know, it was very intimidating. We thought, well, if it rushed us. When we're in our tent, I'm not sure there's a lot we could do, you know, but we put the alarms up nevertheless, and luckily it never came back. And then we only saw one caribou. We didn't see the herds that we were expecting on the southern portion. There was one caribou uh, before we got to King William Island, and he, once again, just kind of walked by the camp. 
I think the wildlife up there, very curious with the exception of the polar bears who were smart enough to stay away from us. But uh, the wildlife was very fascinating. I just wish we had seen more of it, but the wildlife we did see was, was very fascinating. Sounds like it. So let's shift to a different kind of wildlife. Outside of the hamlets, did you run across people much? Not a lot. I'd say, let's see, between the start at Baffin Bay, we ran across one research team down in Prince Regent Inlet. Uh, they, were, they had their tent set up and everything. We visited them, and they were doing some research. And they asked us not to talk about it, so I can't even tell you who they are. But uh, they're do, they were doing uh, whale research on an, uh, on an island. And then we saw some local Inuit hunters hunting whales, Norwal, after we got through Dot Strait. There was two boats there. And then just before we came to Cambridge Bay, we saw two sailboats making their way through, uh, private sailboats making their way through Cambridge Bay. But other than that, it was a handful of cruise ships, and we didn't see any individuals at all. How about weather? What did you experience for weather? What didn't we? <laughs> Man, we had, you know, it, the weather was the most contrasting thing there more than the terrain the weather throughout the day especially towards the end would would change radically and immediately if you start out with a calm day with glassy water at the start of the expedition when we're in the middle of the summer at least this you know before winter started to encroach we could count on the same weather throughout the day you know we were crossing prince region inlet we had glassy conditions the whole way and it was just heavenly but as we had more darkness come in you know the more hours of darkness increased at night and we got more southern and we came closer to winter the weather would be sunny at one point and then we'd have strong 20 mile an hour winds at the next point and and those would kick up you know six to eight foot waves and all of a sudden we'd have to take some evasive action we didn't really get a lot of snow until the last three weeks but the snowstorms towards the end were would sock us down for days and snow would pile up against our tent we'd have to shovel it off you know we could paddle in snow and rain or sleet but if the winds kicked up the waves then we were we were really shut down i heard a story about 20 foot breaking waves yeah that was man the northwest passage doesn't give it up easily that's for sure so there we were making our way north along the franklin or along franklin bay towards the official finish at Cape Bathurst, and the sun was out, which was rare. And, and even if you have horrible sea conditions, if the sun's out, things seem a little bit nicer, as opposed to the deep overcast that we were used to. Well, you got to remember, this was less than two weeks ago for me, so it's still pretty fresh in my mind. Yeah. And as we got closer, well, it was a rough day with the wind anyway. The wind was coming from the northeast which was strange, and the land was on our left, and so the, it was creating these breakers towards the 16 miles of shoreline that we were following from our, our last camp around the top of Cape Bathurst. We stayed outside the breakers, and we were making great time because we were surfing down the backs of waves. Now, a lot of people see surfers, and they get it on the fronts of waves, and that's pretty neat. Well, the back of waves create these slopes also, and if you position your boat just right, you can make really good time surfing down the backs of waves, one wave after the other. And we were making great time like this. And then as we were watching our GPS and watching the cliffs on our left side as we approached Cape Bathurst, the waves got bigger. And so we came out a little bit further, and there's the shoal that comes out from Cape Bathurst for a couple of miles. It's a very shallow area. That's Some of it is submerged, and some of it is above water. 
waves got huge. And we can tell the length of a wave because we know our kayaks are 23 feet long. And that's, that's what we use to measure the wave height. Jeff and I are in one boat and Eileen and Mark are in the other boat. And Eileen and Mark don't have the same level of experience that Jeff and I have with this type of water. And they started peeling out towards this calm area between the breakers and the shoal, which is very tempting to do if, you know, if you're not used to this kind of thing. Because it's, hey, there's calm water, let's go towards it. Well, that calm water can be anywhere from six inches to three feet deep or, or even anywhere in between there. But you know it's shallow because the breakers are hitting, you know, a couple hundred yards offshore. So you really shouldn't go in there. And they headed right in there. And we we're Jeff and I are standing outside the breakers, and the breakers got up to probably 25 feet tall, based on the length of our boats. And so we started yelling at them to come out where we were, and they weren't quite understanding us because we had these crashing breakers going on. And finally, they did. But by then, they were well into the break zone. And when they turned to go come back out to the safer water—not calm water, but safer water—they had to go through a couple of huge breakers where their boats were their boat was flying up over these breakers, half the length of the boat was in the air. They would slam down the other side and then get ready for the next breaker. And oh, we were so scared that they would flip or they'd hit some shallow or something terrible would happen because there's no way we could have gotten in there to rescue them. I mean, it was a real death zone. And eventually they did. They persevered. Mark, who's in the bow, is just this horse of a paddler. He's very strong. And they they pulled through there and got back out to where we were and then we explained to them look here's where y'all shouldn't have been there and we slowly made our way around the rougher areas and were able to get around cape bathurst and and surf to a, a calmer areas once once we all got together again but that was that was an extremely scary moment yeah it uh, sounds like it yeah the waves are just massive now you mentioned that um, you and Jeff had had experience in uh, in bigger water. But Mark and Nining uh, may, may not have had the same experience, but most of your experiences, from what I've seen here, river racing, Volga River, Amazon River. Where did you get the big water experience that made you comfortable with this? Oddly enough, on the Amazon. And, okay. And and let me tell you about that. The last I don't know 800 miles of the Amazon River, you have a tidal flow that comes in from the Atlantic every six to eight hours and then reverses well when that tide starts hitting you know the biggest most voluminous river on the planet the coming in you have these giant waves that hit so every day we we knew when to pull over when the waves started growing and they would get up to six feet on the amazon hundreds of miles inland so we dealt with big waves there and then when we finished the amazon river and anybody that wants to read my book i urge you to do so you can be found it on Amazon.com <laughs> or my website, the Amazon from Source to Sea. At the end of the our expedition on the Amazon, we were camped on this this uh, sand island, and we thought, okay, it's 12 feet above the water. Let's camp here. We're tired. We've been awake for 48 hours. We're worn out. The river was stretched out to about 90 miles there, the mouth of the river. This isn't a bay. This isn't the ocean. This is fresh water spilling into the ocean. This is a 90 mile wide mouth of a river flowing. And two hours after we went to sleep, we were woken up by water at our feet, came right up to the tent. The incoming tide was from the Atlantic had risen that 90 miles, 12 to 14 feet hmm. in two hours. And so we jumped up, we threw all our gear into the kayaks and we started, it was the middle of the night, actually it was about 10 o'clock at night. 
and we thought, well, let's get out of here, you know, and there was nowhere to go because the whole area was flooded mangrove swamps. So we just paddled out to the Atlantic to finish the expedition. We finished at three in the morning. On the way out there, we had the, the tide from the Atlantic kicking everything it could at us. We faced 30 foot waves in the middle of the night. Jeff and Ian, Ian Rolls is our partner down there. You know, they had a 24 foot Valley Sea kayak and we measured the waves by theirs and I was in a solo kayak. We'd have to rush to the top of these waves, crest them and slam down the other side and then rush up the next waves. And we hit that thing, those things for hours, these giant waves until we finally crossed this magic line into the Atlantic on our GPS. And we turned around and surfed them in to the nearest shoreline. And the similar thing, but to a lesser extent, happened on the Volga. When we were down past Volgograd, we got hit with these giant headwinds that kicked up six-foot waves. We were in solo kayaks then, and same thing. We had to race across the river sometimes to safety, dealing with these large river waves, for lack of a better, that were wind-generated. So we had dealt with some of this. Plus, Jeff is a whitewater raft guide who's done the Grand Canyon twice and, and several whitewater trips in Texas. And I was trained in whitewater uh, initially. So a lot of that transfers over to a lot of the waves we hit, the giant waves we hit on the Northwest Passage. We also paddle the Texas coast. We've gotten used to saltwater, to shallows, to waves. We can read currents near shores, breaking waves. We know how to figure out where that's gonna happen. And if we see a breaking wave, we can kind of understand what's going on under the water that's making that happen. And Mark had some experience uh, in Hong Kong with being offshore with some waves, more as a rower than a paddler. So for your Northwest Passage trip, what was the length of the trip? Miles, 1,570.9. Out over how many days? Uh, 83 days. And okay. that includes uh, our rest days, the days we didn't paddle. How many uh, off-water days did you have? You know, I hadn't counted those up. That's, that's a good question. No one's asked me that yet. But they grew, not quite exponentially, but they grew from Cambridge Bay to the finish, the further we went because we had harsher weather to deal with. Initially, our down days were more to avoid any weather that might be coming for a long passage. But after Cambridge Bay, the weather would hit us right then and there where we were camping and we weren't able to leave the camp. So I'll have to figure out how many down days there were. Okay. Um, did you have a specific end date that you needed to hit? Not really. With this type of thing, we knew winter was coming, but we also are working with some unknown variables such as the, you know, global warming, which is the only reason we're able to make this expedition because the sea ice is non-existent for a certain time of year, whereas in previous decades and centuries, it would be year round. So we didn't know. We knew things get bad in October and things get really bad in November. So the further we went, the worse things got and the more harrowing our, our situation became. So we didn't have a a cutoff day where we'd hit the rescue button, but we knew that those days were becoming quite limited towards the end. What are the logistics like for a trip like this? Oh man, there, <laughs> there's nothing set up for any of us up there. Anything you do to get a kayak or a rowing boat or anything up there, you're working well off the seat of your pants. And we were fortunate to find some shippers that were able to haul our kayak, you know, for a substantial amount of money. Logistics are tough. You land in a town, it's not like you're going to call a truck to haul your, your kayak to the water to start or 
a snowmobile to haul you out to, you know, over the ice to Baffin Bay, which we had. We had to make relationships with some local people to help us out. And fortunately, we found some great people. The manager of the airport at, at Pond Inlet arranged to get our kayaks stored in the basement of the clinic, of all places. And then uh, a nurse up there, Diane Batchelor, you know, let us you know, stay in her apartment for free. I mean, because hotels up there are $300 a night per person with a shared room. So it's $600 a night for a room for two people. Mm. And, you know, there's one hotel. Food can be expensive. Luckily, you know, we're able to get things at the grocery stores up there. Logistics are difficult, you know, surprisingly. Even though there's air service up there through Canadian North, they don't necessarily adhere to a set schedule. Well, we'll get you there when we get you there. You know, it's because they have a monopoly on everything. So when we rescheduled for this year, we knew that. The first year, last year, when we went up there, we went up there fairly wide-eyed and hopeful that things kind of worked out, and they didn't. But we learned, okay, you got to ship things months in advance, like our resupply to Cambridge Bay. We shipped it months in advance. And it got there, and it was there. The, the second resupply we shipped up there did not get up there because we didn't anticipate the, the, the town of Yellowknife burning down, you know, with the forest fires there. But everything is dependent upon air travel. You know, you just got to plan on things taking a lot of time if you're going to do anything in the Northwest Passage. So you drove from Texas, drove up, then dropped boats and shipped them? Yeah. And, and then drove the rest of the way? Well, I drove from... Austin, Texas to Thompson, Manitoba with the kayaks and all our gear and put them on a cargo plane, which was then flown to Pond Inlet. At that point, I drove the car, the truck back down to Winnipeg and my sister flew up and drove it home. I flew from then to uh, Ottawa to meet the rest of the team after spending a few days with my daughter in, in, in uh, Chicago. So then we all flew from Ottawa to Pond Inlet through Iqaluit together as a team. And that's the first time the team had been together. First time you'd all four met? Yep, that was it. Okay. What would you want to say to the team? Good job. We had some, you know, very different personalities, often had some confrontations, but each team member had the one thing that was really needed, and that was a desire to finish. Regardless of where that desire came from, everybody wanted to get this thing done. And that's what, that's the one thing that, that I leaned on was, okay, this person here, even though we disagree about this, they want to get it done as much as I do. So let's, let's get this thing done. But that was fortunate. Congratulations to the entire team. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. You had a support crew back at home too, right? Yeah. Amazing. Uh, Tom McGuire, who's also a member of the Explorers Club, he was our tech guy. If, if anything, we call him our Q if this was a James Bond film, because he knew all about the internet and stuff like this. So he handled a lot of the, the technical side of it. And then my sister, Barbara Eddington, has been, as I mentioned before, our expedition manager since the Amazon River. And she didn't plan on becoming our expedition manager then. It just, we, we landed in Peru and we, and we got into the Andes at the, the source of the Amazon River, the most distant source. And it was at that point, Nat Geo called me up and it was a Nat Geo expedition. And they said, um, you know the BGAN that we gave you that connects you to the to a satellite so you can do your daily blogs and keep a surprise of things going on? Yeah, 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 that thing's great. Uh, don't use it. <laughs> what? We said, what are you talking about? Well, turns out the Everest expedition that we just, you know, just finished that we had sponsored, they 
racked up a $45,000 bill in one month. Ooh. So you can't use it. That's our budget. So then, well, how are we supposed to get the word out of what we're doing? And so we had a sat phone, and, and I started calling my sister every day, and she would blog about what we're doing. And so we've been doing it that way ever since. But also, she is, my God, she can, she's like an air traffic controller. If we needed something, she would find the information, or she would find some contact up there, and she would get it for us. She was from hotels in, in Cambridge Bay to... She got us dry suit, replacement dry suits in Cambridge Bay, which it's like, how do you do this? There are no planes coming and going. It's not like you, there's no store to go down to to buy a dry suit. She found people with dry suits, in which she got them donated to us. <laughs> uh, so she's pretty amazing and, and extremely reliable. So I'm, I love her to death. I mean, she's my sister, but she's also has earned the respect of the entire team. She's pretty amazing at what she does. You mentioned cowboy hats earlier. Did you wear the cowboy hats the whole time? We did last year. This year, couldn't make them. We just we were whittling everything down to the, the <laughs> barest ounce. And I liked the cowboy hats for the first half because we actually got sunburned. And you need a wide-brimmed hat. And, and my face got burned pretty bad, as did Mark's, because it's 24 hours of sunlight. And we're paddling directly into the sun, and it's not overcast. And so I really wished I'd had it then. Uh, they were great, great hats that our sponsor gave us. But uh, we just couldn't make it work this year. So what's next for you? <laughs> you know, I've been asked that several times in the last two weeks since I finished. And, and you know, it's kind of like talking to the uh, mother of your child about uh, your second or third child while you're in the labor delivery room. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah I do want to do one, but uh, let's not talk about it right this second, okay? Let me, let, my, let me get some feeling back in my fingers and toes. But um, there will be something. I'm still young. We, we have some ailments that we'll get over. I wouldn't mind doing something that's land-based, but, you know, my passion will always be paddling. So right. we'll see what's out there. But All right. I can assure you it'll be something. Oh, we'll look forward to it. How can listeners reach you and the rest of the team? Well, you can find me and, and all of my expeditions at westhanson.com. That's W-E-S-T-H-A-N-S-E-N.com. And you can also learn specifically about the uh, Arctic Cowboys Northwest Passage Expedition, which is at thearcticcowboys.com. Anybody wants to get a hold of me, I return all my emails, and especially for anybody that wants to try what we've done, I'd be more than happy to share every bit of information I can with you because I think more people need to get out there. Super. Well, we will make sure we get uh, links to those on the show notes and uh, some other resources that you mentioned along the way, along with that book, Amazon Source to See. You got it. Um, one final question that I have for you. Who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? Oh, my goodness. Oh, there's so many people that are, that, are, that are great paddlers. I'd love to hear an interview with Carter Johnson. All right. Now, I'm not sure if you know Carter, but Carter is an old friend of mine. And he's not old. He's up here, but he held several world speed records. And I met Carter, gosh, 15, 20 years ago. And then we were on the same team when we raced on the Amazon River, the Great River Amazon Raft Race. Uh, Carter is, runs uh, a couple of races in California and Oregon and Washington. Yeah, he's downwind. Ex- you got it, downwind. You got it. That's Carter. I would love to hear an interview with him. He's he's uh, he's not one that puts himself out there very much, but I'm, I'm throwing the gauntlet down now, Carter. I want to hear an interview. All right. Well, I'll connect with you offline. We'll get connected with Carter and uh, get him on the show. 
That sounds great. I would love to hear an interview with him. West, it's been fantastic talking to you, learning uh, from, from you, learning about the Ar- Arctic Cowboys. Congratulations to you and the entire team on completing the expedition. Thank you so much, John. It was, uh, it was an honor, uh, and, uh, and I really appreciate you uh, reaching out to me. This has been, been a lot of fun. Thank you. All right, John, you take care. You too. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or whitewater, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. Congratulations to the entire Arctic Cowboys team for completing an impressive expedition. Visit www.paddlingtheblue.com and click into episode number 100 for the show notes for this episode. And there you'll find links to Joe Kane's book about the first expedition to travel the entirety of the Amazon that West referred to as his inspiration, as well as West's book about his Amazon source-to-sea trip. And you'll also find more information about the Arctic Cowboys, including their route map. Thanks again to our partners at OnlineSeaKayaking.com for extending a special offer to you. And just visit OnlineSeaKayaking.com to take advantage of the great video programming from James and Simon and other talented guests, including previous guests of Paddling the Blue. You can enter the code PTBPODCAST at checkout and get 10% off just for being a member of the Paddling the Blue community. Our next episode will feature Nick Ray, and Nick's going to join us. Uh, Many of you may have been following Nick on his 365-day journey experiencing the coastline and wonderful people of Scotland. Join us to hear firsthand from Nick about his trip and his very personal message. You certainly won't want to miss this one. Until next time, thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next 100 episodes plus of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.